What's good? What's good, party people? Welcome to Candid Conversations. I am your host, Candia Johnson, a woman on a mission to help you show up and speak up anyway, despite dealing with fear, uncertainty, or self-doubt. Sometimes the most difficult times in our lives that seemingly ruin your career or your love life or your plans for a better future and next thing you know, your heart is shattered in a gazillion pieces because you just don't know where to turn left, right, up, down. (laughs) But ironically, those are also the moments that help you find and live your truth unapologetically. An unapologetically truthful life is one that is based on your feelings desires and dreams instead of a truth based on making other people feel comfortable. And so today we're having a powerful conversation with Charlene Willis about what it takes to own and speak your truth powerfully and skillfully at work and in life. Now Charlene found her truth while battling breast cancer. She initially thought she would face a seven month treatment plan and it turned into a five years of treatments. And then As a black woman who's in an interracial marriage and has biracial children, she also faced another moment of truth where she talks very candidly about the rules that she, her husband, and her children had to create for themselves, even when it comes to having tough conversations with family members about what they would and would not stand for. Beyond being a mom and a wife, Charlene is a former vice president of Global Corporate Affairs an author of a best-selling book entitled You Are Enough, and PR Week magazine named Charlene as one of the 50 most influential public relations professionals in the industry. Now, currently, she's an executive career coach and a senior advisor for equity and justice at APCO Worldwide. And so she brings that wealth of knowledge and experience into our discussion today sharing advice on how to speak up and advocate for yourself when it comes to negotiating your salary or dealing with someone who interrupts you while you're speaking at work. So listen, don't get it twisted. This is Candid Conversations. Beyond the accolades and achievements, we're having real talk about what it takes to show up and speak up for yourself when life seems to throw a monkey wrench in your plans. Listen and let me know what you think. So today... We are talking about owning your truth. And I love the title, but it's heavy and it's hard to (laughs) live up to that every single day. So I needed some help. And when (laughs) I read about Miss Charlene's background, I said, this is the one to shed some light on how we can live true to who we are unapologetically. So I'm always curious, though, how do people get to that point? So if you would have followed your childhood dreams, what would you be right now? What would your career be right now? I'm not even sure I would have a career if I followed my dreams. I think at best, I'd be either a bus driver or I would be an elementary school teacher. Very, very different. But that's pretty much what I was exposed to as a child. And it really does go back to, you know, you have to see it to believe it and exposure. And so when I was growing up, my exposure was very limited. Wow. So what are the parts of your journey that exposed you to who you are right now and the work that you do? So gosh, there were so many things. I believe everybody's life is made up of kind of pivot points and pivotal moments. And so I think back in my life of what were the pivot points and pivotal moments. 
And so some of these might make sense and some might seem a little silly, but they were all quite meaningful. And I would say that things really started for me. You know, I grew up in Oakland, California, not the good part at that time. And there just wasn't a lot that was expected of me. And I was born into an abusive home. And when I was about um, seven, my mother left my father and we rented a house from an Oakland Raiders football player. And he gave my mother tickets to a football game. And I was at this football game and I saw the um, Oakland Raiderette cheerleaders in person. And I'd never seen anything like that. So glamorous. And to me, they were the end all be all. I'd just never seen anything like that. And I thought, wow, maybe I could be somebody too, right? And I didn't know if it was going to be that, but I just thought they were bigger than life. And that was the first time I thought it's possible to be bigger than life. So that really set me on um, a journey where I just had an idea. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew I could be more. I knew I could be more than that bus driver that I saw every day. I knew that I could be more than a teacher. And that was kind of a pivotal moment for me. And about two years later, I tried out for cheerleader. I'll make a very long story short. Uh, I was in junior high school and I didn't make the team. I thought I was good, but I didn't make the team. I made it as the fourth alternate. But then within a month, the teacher put me on the team. And so in all of my excitement, I asked her, you know, this is great, but why did you put me on the team ahead of everyone else? And she said to me, Charlene, you're really talented, but you're black. And I thought you'd be a troublemaker. So I didn't put you on the team. But now that I see you're a nice little girl, I've decided to move you up. And so that was the other pivotal moment when I realized that no matter who I was, that there were some people who were going to decide my future for me simply because of the color of my skin and their own bias. And I put those two things together, seeing the Oakland Raiderettes being larger than life and seeing this opportunity here with cheerleading in this situation where someone was going to judge me and it had nothing to do with who I was or my talent. It was all her, her belief. So that really led me on a path of realizing that I was going to have to carve out my own future. And so, and that has driven me for the next 40 plus years and how I decided to, to go about building my career. And I decided early on when I decided to go to college, my best friend, she, she was going to college. There were all these expectations of her. There were no expectations of me, but I thought she's going to college. So I'm going to go to college. And then once there, I took my first journalism course And as I like to say, it was love at first letter. I just knew I wanted to be in journalism or in communications and kind of the rest is history from there. I love it. Now you have an extensive career where (laughs) you have assumed leadership roles in different global companies. Mm -hmm. Looking back on your work, what is the work that has brought you the most joy? Gosh, you know, when I started out in my career in communications, what really excited me was just doing the work, you know, being in communications, being a chief communications officer is a really important and exciting position because you're in the middle of everything. You're in the mix of everything. 
But where it really started to come home to me was one, I realized the power of communication, but then also I realized um, how much of a trailblazer I was for women and women of color. And that really gave my career a sense of purpose. So when I, when I had those days where I just wanted to beat my head against the wall because it was too frustrating, because the other part about being in these companies is that I was often the first and only, the first and only Black executive, the first and only Black female executive. And I'll tell you, that was hard. A lot of the times it was hard more often than it was easy. And so once I realized that I was actually blazing trails for people who would come behind me, that gave that struggle a purpose, right? And it made me say, okay, I may want to throw in the towel, but I'm not going to do that if that's going to send a message to everyone else who looks like me, you know, that says things are never going to change and you can't have success. So that's really when I found my initial purpose, I'd say in the corporate world. Now, are those purpose-filled moments Mm -hmm. These moments also inspire you to write or publish your book. You are enough. Listen, y'all got to go get the book. Okay. I'll right? tell you too much. Okay. Y'all know I like to give you a little bit. I'm not going right. to tell you. What? Uh, uh, I want to talk more about the book because she has sure. two words at the end of it, unapologetic authenticity. And I'm like, yes. So yes. did those purposeful moments also inspire the book? Yes and no. So what inspired the book is in 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and what was intended to be my seven month treatment plan turned into nearly five years. And I nearly died twice that I can remember. So it became very difficult, but in the middle of it, in about 2019, I still decided to go back to work, right? Because that was what I knew. I knew how to drive hard. I knew how to be that person. And when I went back to work, I realized that I couldn't do it anymore and I didn't want to do it anymore, right? I had been, you know, I'd given it the good fight. I was trying to make change and I did make progress, but I started asking myself, at what expense did I do that? And I was continuing um, to get sick. I was not getting better. And doctors will probably tell you that it was the amount of stress I was under and so one day I just realized that I needed to make a different choice and I needed to make a choice for myself. And so I chose to leave the corporate world, a world that I had known for 30 plus years. And I didn't know what I was going to do, quite honestly. And I woke up one day and I said, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to write a book because there aren't enough people out there talking about what it's like being a woman of color, what it's like being the one and the only and the struggles. And there, there are plenty of people who want to gloss it over, right? And say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Well, guess what? It was that bad. And so I really felt a need to tell my story and to tell the truth and to take those lessons and experiences that I had and turn them into strategies for other people so that other people who are climbing the ladder don't have to do it the way that I could. They could own their power much sooner than I ever learned to. And I realized that while I've had a really successful career and I'm proud of it, you know, I, I spent 20 plus years turning myself inside out to become who they, the power structure said that I needed to be, 
And if you're not careful, you twist yourself into so many directions that you lose yourself in the process. And so when I decided to write the book, it became really important to me that book be called You Are Enough and that you can reclaim your career and your life with purpose, passion, and unapologetic authenticity because we are who we are and we don't need to apologize for that in life or in work ever. Mm -hmm. Several things that I want to touch on. I know there was a lot there. (laughs) There was a lot, but it, it has me so fascinated and intrigued. One, so my sister just thrived through breast cancer and she just, in fact, a few weeks ago had reconstructive surgery. She had mm-hmm. a double mastectomy and, and all the things. And so I empathize with you because that mm-hmm. process for you, as well as your family, mm-hmm. uh, could be it's just an emotional roller coaster. And one of the things that I'm interested in learning more about you is, you know, the last two to three years, or maybe the five, five or so years, the mm-hmm. corporate speak is bring your authentic self to work. And I, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'm, I'm curious. So you already experienced the differences of what it means to be the only woman, the only black mm-hmm. woman in the room. Mm-hmm. And now I could imagine that you're still expected to show up in a certain way while you're battling you know, mm-hmm. cancer as well. How safe did you feel bringing your authentic self to work and and everything that you were feeling and growing through during those times? Yeah, I mean, I would say I did not feel safe at all. And I didn't work through my treatment. I did have surgery. I had a double mastectomy. I um, went through chemo, went through radiation and, and reconstruction, and then had all kinds of complications. And the day I went back to work, My husband said to me, remember, no one really cares that you had cancer. And that was his way of warning me. And I remember getting in my car that day and thinking, well, that was a really crappy thing to say and how cynical, et cetera. Well, you know what? He was 100% right because you go back to work and for the most part, you look like yourself and people just forget that you have cancer and they didn't really care right? I mean, there are people who care, but I'm talking about in the bigger picture. And I would say with each growing day, I felt less and less safe. Being my authentic self meant acknowledging that I had cancer and I wasn't a hundred percent. And I did do that. I did acknowledge that. And my team, they were very understanding and wanted to help and understood that I was not hundred percent. I couldn't be that fiend that I used to be. What I tell people is when you go back to work, pay attention to the people around you, because while you know that you need grace and you need people to give you room, there are many people who will, but there are also people who are lurking in the corners waiting to profit off of your vulnerability. I would love to say that just doesn't exist, but you'd be kidding yourself if you went back into the workplace and you thought that. I would say in my entire career, I never felt more vulnerable than when I went back to work after having had cancer. Right. Because from what I can understand from my sister's experience, I have friends who've had similar Mm -hmm. experiences, Mm -hmm. is that although physically, Mm -hmm you have overcome the disease 
Right. Mentally, it still continues to follow you. And so even making the decision to return to the workplace, there's still a need for you to be seen, valued, and heard. And your past experience even just mm-hmm. recognized to from your employees or your superiors. Or, because I feel like when it comes to su- diseases such as cancer, the disease leaves you, but mentally... <laughs> It's still a journey when you try to return. Yeah, I had a really strong need to be understood. But at the same time, it was really hard to get people to to see that because there there, there is a need at the same time for you to put on this facade, right? Because you want to believe that you're the same person you were when you went, when you left work, right? Then when you came back and the reality is, you are not the same person. You cannot go through a life-changing event and be the same person that you used to be. Your perspective is different. Physically, you're different. You know, I tell people I may look the same and just have a few body parts missing, but that's physically. Mentally, I am in a completely different space. And it took me time to understand that as well. And I, I often say, you know, cancer changed me. So I had to change my world. You know, I knew I still wanted to be a trailblazer, but I couldn't be a trailblazer in the way I had always been. I had to say goodbye to that life because it was no longer serving me. And if it wasn't serving me, then I couldn't serve others. One of the things that I firmly believe when you are going through hardships, when you're trying to show up uh, in in your life for your children, your family, uh, your community, is that I believe that success comes down to learning how to have a better conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. And so as you think back to your five year span mm-hmm. dealing with cancer and everything else that it, that it brings <laughs> right to your, to yourself and to your family, mm-hmm. what are the, some of the things that you may have said to yourself or the things that you may have done to make you feel better or just to bring you some sort of relief? Well, you know, I did a couple of things when I was, when I was working and jetting all over the world and traveling and my kids were younger, I would always make a deal with myself, which was at the end of every trip, I would buy a pair of shoes. Right. And I would do that because it gave me something to look forward to going on the trip and something to look forward to coming home. Because I knew when I bought those shoes, that just meant I'm a day away from coming home. So when I when I started my cancer treatment and I like everyone, I was very afraid. I didn't know what was coming. So I made a deal with myself that after everything, every treatment or every surgery, and I had nine surgeries in three years. And so it was with every challenge that I faced with, with courage and got through, I would buy myself a bracelet afterward. And so that was the little mind trick that I played on myself to help me get through it. You can see my bracelets there. So I should have five, but I have 12 because I did have so many complications, you know, and then the other is I realized as I was getting towards the end of my treatment, I realized I I was not the person I used to be and couldn't be that hard hitting executive anymore and didn't want to be that person. Then I really had to just spend some time with myself and just thinking about what matters to me, what is important to me and who am I? Because I'd spent so much time trying to be so many things to so many people 
you know, and to the establishment in order to be successful, that probably the biggest aha that I had was that I had spent 30 years in the workforce trying to prove to people that I was enough. And ultimately I realized that I had been enough all along, right? The problem wasn't me, it was them. And I paid the price for that. And so I'd say one of the best lessons that I've taken away from all of this, which of course is why it leads with my book, is the understanding and believing that you are enough. And from that foundation, you can do anything. And I realize, and I, I preach this a lot, and I use that word purposefully, is that just because somebody tells you that you are not enough, or you're less than, or you're not this, does not mean that you have to believe it, own it, and become it. You can reject it, right? Right, and be who you are. Right. What would you say to the woman who's in corporate America mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. and they are trying their best to get ahead, but they're constantly met with that concrete wall of mm-hmm. maybe they're turned down for promotion, maybe people are talking over them in a meeting and they're constantly trying to develop themselves or position themselves as a leader and Mm -hmm. they're being shut down. What's your advice for that woman in getting to an understanding where she is enough, although Mm -hmm. she's faced with all these things every single day? Right. Absolutely. I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, which is why I wrote a whole book about it. One thing is that when we, especially women, when we go into new jobs or new situations, people tell us, put your head down, work hard. Someone's going to notice, pluck you out of obscurity and your career is just going to take off. So first and foremost, that's the worst career advice I've ever heard. And it doesn't work that way. So what I tell people is when you do something good, tell someone about it. And it doesn't mean that you're bragging and you can bring other people along with you, meaning talk about the team, but make your value known. Don't be afraid to stand up and say, yes, I did have uh, something to do with that project. Or when that person takes credit for it, there's a nice way to say, you know, so-and-so, I'm just going to call him Jim for right now. You know, Jim, you were really a really important part of that project, but you weren't the only part of that project, right? Stand up for yourself. When someone is speaking over you, which we experience quite frequently as women and especially women of color in meetings, I'll say, Joe, if you could just hold on a minute, because I haven't finished what I was going to say and then finish your point. But we're often so hesitant. We just let people talk over us and slowly, but surely it diminishes us more and more and more. And before we know it, we stop talking. So I'm a big believer in call things out in the moment, call them out respectfully, but you have a right to finish your thought. And if I say something and I've had this experience, I'll say something, you get radio silence. A man says it, I'm not male bashing, but a man says it five minutes later and people say it's a brilliant idea. For 10 years, I would mope about it and say, I can't believe that they just did that. By the time I was getting ready to leave corporate America, I would say, I have a question. Joe said the exact same thing that I did. Yet when I said it, nobody seemed to care. When Joe repeated it, suddenly it was a brilliant idea. What did I miss? 
right? And I would just, and you have to say things nicely because otherwise we become the angry black women in the office, right? So you have to watch out for that trope. But I tell people, especially women, stand up for yourself. You can do it respectfully. If you're working towards something, make sure people know it. Ask for what you want. And if you do nothing, nothing else, negotiate, negotiate for your position, negotiate for your pay, negotiate, 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 because when you negotiate, you gain credibility. Mm. Charlene is going to make me get a tambourine for this. <laughs> I need a tambourine, some drums. I don't know how hard it is sometimes to sit here when people share mic drops and tambourine moments. And I have to just sit here and be quiet because I just want them to get it all out. And so, yes, to everything that you've just said, particularly when it comes to speaking up and advocating yes. for yourself and, and speaking of negotiation, and I want to talk about that. I wasn't mm-hmm. going to go there, but I, I love to get some takes on negotiation. What do you believe is the biggest mistake that we make when it comes to negotiating, especially for women? Oh my gosh. The biggest mistake that we make is we think that we were lucky to get the job or lucky to get the promotion please stop to all of your listeners, whatever you accomplish, stop saying, oh, I was so lucky to get the job. You did not get that job because you were lucky. You got it because you were qualified and because you earned it. And you have to know and believe that because if you think you were lucky, you have put yourself in a subordinate position. You didn't get it. Nobody's handing out jobs because they feel like, oh, I'm going to be the the good luck charm for this person. You earned that job. So start from that point. And oh, by the way, when it goes into and comes to a new job or a new promotion, you are never more valuable than before you step into that office because they want you and you've got the power. So if they're offering you $15,000 more than what you want, counter offer at 35 more, right? The worst thing that will happen is they will come back and say, I can't give you that much. Then the next thing you say is how much wiggle room do you have? You just keep pushing it because I can guarantee you that unless they give you that offer at the beginning and say, this is my best and final, which never happens, they have room. And I have seen companies come up 40% on a job offer. But if that person had not asked for more, they wouldn't have gotten more. I had a job, I was offered a job once and the, the chairman said to me, Charlene, what is it going to take for you to take, to take this job? And I said, you know, the offer has to be so good that my current CEO tells me to take the job. When that offer came in, it was twice my current salary twice. So don't be afraid to ask, to put it out there, know your worth and command your value. Yeah. Listen. Okay. Negotiation is a conversation. That's one of the things. Absolutely. Prepare for the no, prepare for the conversation. Thank you so much for, for shedding light on that. I also believe that equally important, you know, we always say be committed to lifelong learning, but I also believe that we should be committed to lifelong unlearning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What is something that you used to believe that you no longer believe to be true for your life right now? Yeah. I used to believe that you could not be successful 
unless someone else in power decided that you could be successful, right? That it took someone else in order for you to move forward. And yes, you do have to have the support of other people, but you can state your own value and your own worth. You can make it known. While you might need someone to help give you a platform, you don't need someone to speak for you. Use your voice. And for the longest time, I I believed in that viewpoint of if you put your head down and work really hard, that someone's going to notice. You'll never hear me give anybody that kind of advice. The other is, I think, is I thought you have to, you know, go along to get along. And when I was coming up, that was probably true. Nowadays, I think the young people who are entering the work workforce, y'all have power, use it. When I give motivational speeches and keynotes, one thing I always say about being in the workplace is we're all so focused on getting that seat at the table, but what really matters is if the other people at that table are comfortable with you being there. And that's where you have to focus, right? Because if they're not comfortable with you being there, all you are is a title and nothing else. Mm. Speaking of, 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 that party being comfortable. How do you determine if, especially when we receive feedback, feedback is fuel, right? I've always believed Mm -hmm. that to be true. Feedback is fuel for your level up. What's your advice in determining feedback that's fuel for your next level versus feedback from people who are just uncomfortable by about your presence? Yeah, I think that feedback is a gift if it is meant as a gift and it is, and if it is given with honesty and with, with noble purpose. And so when you have someone who's giving you feedback, assess not just the feedback, but the individual who's giving you that feedback and their motivations. And if you don't know what those motivations are, ask them. All right. A great example over my career, I've often been given feedback of gee, Charlene, you really need to figure out how to get along better with so-and-so, right? Because an issue with you. Well, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, as because uh, I've had that conversation more than once, the last time I got that piece of advice, I said, I understand, but are you having the same conversation with so-and-so about getting along with me? And if not, let's have a conversation about that because I need to understand. And so, you know, a lot of it, I I think feedback is great, but as a coach, I believe in feed forward. And what I mean by that is here's what you can do going forward to better a situation as opposed to here's what you did wrong, right? Because we can't do anything about any of the thing that's behind us, right? The only thing we can do is be better when we go forward, as uh, Dr. Maya Angelou used to say, when you know better, you do better, right? So I believe in feed forward. And if you're thinking of giving anybody feedback, stop, give them feed forward because that's helpful. Feedback is only harmful. So I talk about mindset shifts for leaders all of the time. And mm-hmm. I have to say, let me just give you a heads up. I'll quote you, don't worry, but I am <laughs> definitely going to... <laughs> share that mindset shift of 
moving from feedback to feed forward, because I think in even preparing to give someone feedback about, Mm -hmm. you know, their performance in the workplace, or even personally, when you start to change your language and and embrace feed forward, you start to explore, okay, what is the practical advice I can give them that would help them accomplish their personal Mm -hmm. goals versus even my personal preferences. Right. And in the spirit of transparency, I am a um, Marshall Goldsmith certified coach. And um, part of his framework and his practice of coaching is feed forward. Mm. So it's not authentically mine. uh, But as a certified coach, I do use it often. And I give you full permission to use it as well, because I think it's helpful for people. It is helpful. It's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Speaking of authenticity, what do you believe it means to live unapologetically and and authentic to who you are. What does that mean for you? To me, it means just being who I am, saying what I think and what I believe, even if it isn't going to be popular, right? You can be unpopular without being rude. I've reached a point in my life where I am not changing for anyone other than myself. My Christianity is very important to me. So I try to live a good Christian life. And as a result of that, I really feel like there's not anything I need to apologize for. And I refuse to be made to feel that I need to apologize for being me. I'm not perfect. I never will be perfect, but this is who I am. And if you don't like who I am, that's okay right? We don't like everybody. And so I don't need everybody to like me, but I'm not going to change who I am, what I believe or how I operate for someone else. I may get a piece of information and say, I don't want to be perceived this way. Therefore I am going to start doing X, but it's going to be my idea. It's going to be my choice. Because I believe that another thing I talk about often is it's choice, not chance that changes your life. So make a choice. Choice is hugely important to me. And so I think living within your authentic self, it is about being true to who you are, to yourself and to other people, right? You you know, I'm not going to beat anybody over the head to accept me, but I'm going to be who I am, Mm -hmm. right? Let's switch gears, but it sure. connect the dots moments for sure. Mm-hmm. When we talk about living in your truth and not apologizing for your choices, you are a black woman. You're in an interracial yes. marriage. I am. You have two uh, biracial children. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a moment when sometimes people look at people in interracial marriages, there's a stare, there's a, there's judgment. Did you mm-hmm. ever have a fear of what people may think about your choice in marriage? I wouldn't say that I ever had a fear of it, but I've always been aware when it is an issue and it's not an issue for somebody, but it's an issue for most people. My husband and I have been married for 31 years, you know, and so you reach a point where you forget that you're in interracial marriage until other people remind you of it. You know, and so I think that there were probably times, certainly in the workplace where you have the events where you have to bring your spouse and, and I went through a time when I'd say, oh, okay, 
Do I need to tell them that I'm in an interracial marriage beforehand so that there isn't that shock value, which really equates to almost apologizing for it, you know? And so I just decided I'm not going to make that a, a point of conversation. And you see the surprise on people's faces and it's like, okay, that's kind of your deal, not mine. We did not have the support of both of our families when we got married. And we chose to move forward anyway. 31 years. 31 years. Listen, yeah. we, that's another tambourine moment. I love what I hear uh, people talk about, you know, they're celebrating 20 years of marriage or 25 mm-hmm. or, or 30 uh, years, years of marriage. And those moments uh, when you realized that you didn't have the support of, of both sides of your family, mm-hmm. did you, and especially now that you have children, Right. What did you decide to do differently with your children than the grace and acceptance that was probably given to you Mm -hmm. and your husband? What did you, I always believe that sometimes couples should create their own rules when they get married and then for their own children, that's probably Mm -hmm. going to be different than what they were raised to believe. How are you teaching your children differently? Mm -hmm. From the moment they're both girls and from the moment our girls were, were little and could understand that to some people, they were different. We taught them that they were the solution, that they were the proof. They were living proof that two races could come together and create something beautiful. And, and if we said that once, we said that a thousand times in our household, Uh, We told them, don't ever let anybody uh, make you feel differently because you are are two races or that you have to choose a race. We taught them how to choose both boxes before it was really a thing, (laughs) right? And we just said, you you be you. You are beautiful young ladies and you don't have to explain to anybody anything, but you are proof that two races can come together. You are the solution. Mm -hmm. And we have taught them that their entire lives. And with family members that did not agree with with the interracial uh, marriage and biracial children in our family, we actually forbid them to even talk about race to our children. We said, you are not qualified or educated to talk to our children about race. And should you choose to take that on, you will never see them again. And that was a hard line for us, Mm. a very hard line for us. But that also speaks volumes about your credibility in writing this this book because because it's a boundary, right? That you had to and live up to. And it speaks volumes about reclaiming your your life Mm -hmm. and the unapologetic authenticity term. It just speaks volumes. Absolutely. And I give my husband a lot of credit because my husband is, as I call him, wonder bread white. And so for me, I'm black. You see me, you know that I am a black woman. For him, people would not look at him and just assume that he was in an interracial marriage and had biracial children. So he has spent a lot more time, as I say, setting people straight because they might feel comfortable saying things to him, thinking that he's a white man with a white family, et cetera. So he's done a lot of educating of other people over over his lifetime and has had lots of surprises as well. 
you know, people that he didn't think had issues that did. And I give him a lot of credit for standing up and he would say to people, you know, they'd say something and he'd say, you know, my wife is black, right? And I don't really agree with what you're saying. As a matter of fact, you should never say that in front of me again, Mm. or you should never say that again, period, whether I'm around or not. So I give him a lot of credit. And, and I have to give him credit too. So before we started the podcast, I let Charlene know that I read an, an article. I can't remember the title of the article, but I read mm-hmm. an article that her husband wrote and for LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, we need more of that because we often yeah. hear Black women talking about the experience, but not the experience from, from a white person's perspective mm-hmm. when you're in a, in, a, in a racial marriage. And especially it being published on LinkedIn. <laughs> You know, maybe it would be in a separate article, but when I saw it on LinkedIn, I was like, oh, this is good because we do need to have or see more from the other person's perspective as well. Right. And I had done that. It's actually a three-part series because this was shortly after George Floyd was murdered and racial tensions were high. And I asked my family, because I read a blog and I asked them, I think we should let people know what it's like at this time being in an an interracial marriage and being a multiracial family. And I thought I would write one blog post and just get some input from them. But I had each of them write a piece and each piece was so powerful that I couldn't put it all into one and print it. I really needed them to talk about it in their own words. And each of my daughters wrote a piece. And then my husband wrote the last piece, which is a piece you read, which I thought was just so powerful. Wow. I love it. Talking about unapologetic authenticity. You're not only <laughs> yes. getting it from Charlene. She got the kids involved, the husband, <laughs> the whole family. Standing <laughs> So what do you think, this is my last, I have two more questions. Sure. What advice do you have for the woman or what are the signs that you, that someone needs to reclaim their life and be mm-hmm. more authentic? Is it, is it something that we feel? Is it something that we experience? What would be the signs that someone may need to sit with themselves mm-hmm. for a minute? So it's all of these things. And I have, I have three mantras that I live by. One is, I've already mentioned, well, a couple, um, it's choice, not chance that changes your life and really, really understand that we all have choices. If you're in a situation that makes you miserable, you can choose to get out of that situation. It is choice, not chance that changes your life. The other is you are enough. We spend our entire lives getting feedback and whether it's verbal, direct, or indirect, that we're not enough. You have to believe and understand that you are enough. Don't ever let anybody make you think that you aren't because you are. And then the last one of my mantra that I live by is called seven seconds of courage. And I believe that you can do anything, including transforming your entire life with seven seconds of courage. And neuroscientists will tell you that if you have to make a big decision, six, the first six seconds are emotion, but that seventh second is when the magic happens because that's when you act. That's when you make a decision to act. 
and anything. If it's that boss that's driving you crazy and you need to leave, you only need seven seconds of courage to make that decision and tell that person you're leaving. Right. So I was going to ask you for some practical advice, but how Mm -hmm. that is the best advice yet. I am going to encourage everyone who's listening right now Mm -hmm. to schedule a seven seconds of courage moment, a recurring reminder on your calendar, because I do believe that when you talk about reclaiming your life and your career Mm -hmm. and unapologetic authenticity, the practical advice is it has to be something that you follow every single week and challenge yourself to seven seconds. Absolutely. So yes, I, every time, yeah, every time I'm afraid of someone, I still, I feel fear coming in. I remind myself choice. I can do this and seven seconds and I'll count. I'll count it out seven seconds. That's all it takes to take a deep breath, get rid of the emotion and take an action. That's it. Just seven seconds, you know, and the other thing that I would say that I really try to get people to understand more so now is that self-care is not the same thing as being selfish. And so many of us put our own care to the side because we think we're being selfish when actually to not take care of yourself when other people rely on you is incredibly selfish. So I really try to tell, try to get people to understand that because I'm full of all these little sayings. Okay. I have a lifetime of them. A dead battery can't jump a dead battery. So self-care is not the same thing as being selfish. Right. And what are some of the ways that you exercise or you embrace self-care for yourself every week? So I've, I've really gotten into Pilates lately. So I love taking my Pilates class. I eat a scoop of ice cream every other day. Jamocha almond fudge from Baskin Robbins, because I absolutely love it. And yes, I drink a glass of tequila every day and I just love it. It puts me in my Zen place. I read a book and I watch stupid TV and all of that rejuvenates me. I journal and of course I pray and all these things. But the important thing, I guess, for me is that I don't put myself second. I just don't. Listen, y'all hear that? You can pray, meditate and go to happy hour. Okay. Because that's absolutely, (laughs) you can pray, (laughs) guard all the things and still go to happy hour. I'm a tequila girl, but every single day I have a glass of wine. That's my thing. Yes, exactly. Single day I have a glass of red wine I'm a Cabernet girl so I love Love Cabernet as long as you're not having that suburban glass you know that that, you know a whole whole bottle (laughs) right what a way to end our time today I just want to thank you so much first of all everyone you have to buy the book but I would also love for (sighs) Charlene to share how you can engage even more with her on online as well Oh, sure. So a couple of things. My website is charlenewheelis.biz. That's B-I-Z. I have an an online store called um, unapologeticaf.store. There's no com. And and there I sell uh, t-shirts and things that say, I am enough. And I bring that up because I am trying to start a movement of women who are 
proudly declaring and wearing their shirts that say, I am enough. And it's actually I period am period enough. So that's one way. And also I'm all over uh, LinkedIn and social media. I'm on TikTok, but you know, that's a little crazy. So you don't really need to go find me there. <laughs> You're not going to get any good advice there, but I am on uh, LinkedIn my, and on my website on Instagram as well. And I encourage anybody who, if you're grappling with something and you just need a little bit of piece of advice, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm more than more than happy to help. I am a motivational speaker and a coach as well. Anybody looking for those, I'm available. But for individuals, if you just need a little help, you just need a little pick me up, hit me up. I am more than happy to help and I won't charge you for it. <laughs> oh, y'all hear that? Okay, now listen, I told y'all. When you hang around Kansas Conversations, you get some treats, okay? So this is a <laughs> right. treat today. Thank you so very much, Charlene. And listen, party people, if this episode touched your heart in any way, share it with your people so they can share it with their people. Talk soon.